All right, hello everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of Crypto with English. And uh, I'm sure for anybody who's been uh, watching the news lately, um, it's certainly an exciting year so far. And uh, I certainly anticipate it to continue um, in that direction as well. But I'd like to introduce a very special guest today, somebody who uh, I would certainly view as a uh, genuine renaissance woman in this space as well. She wears many hats and does many things. She's the co-founder of the British Blockchain and Frontier Technology Association. She's also the chair of the board of directors at Kase Holdings. And she's also an author. She is the ambassador of the FinTech Diversity Radar, advisor to the Kerala Blockchain Association, Africa Blockchain Association uh, for Excellence in Novum Insights, uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jane Thomason. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to talk to you and your listeners. <laughs> Greatly appreciate that. You know, uh, I think one of the more understated aspects of blockchain, but I think one that is gaining more prominence as, as time goes on, is really the potential, and you could almost say the bridge that it creates for unbanked populations across the world. This can be in the United States and North America. This could also be uh, overseas in different parts of Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and so on. And I know that um, discussing and expanding upon, uh, I guess you could say, expanding this technology into unbanked populations is one of your, I think, passions and one of the, uh, I think, your uh, one of your interests. So I was uh, wondering if you could talk about that uh, for a little bit. And where are we right now in 2022 with uh, all these things that are going on? Yeah, thank you. Well, look, so, so I just want to take a step back and say that my interest in blockchain was piqued by my realization that it was going to potentially have a profound impact on people like the unbanked, on people in humanitarian emergencies, on people in um, remote and outlying areas, uh, and for the you know the bottom of the pyramid, if you like. And so that's why I got interested in blockchain because I realised what potentially it could do. So in terms of financial inclusion, which is which is something that we actually really saw accelerate during the pandemic because people got locked down. They couldn't go to right. the banks. They couldn't go to the money merchants. And so they had to start using mobile money of different forms. And, and we now have a situation in the world where 70% of the population have access to mobile phones. And so this means that potentially 70% of the population can have access to the economic system because it's estimated there's about 2.5 billion people who don't have bank accounts. But if you can have a wallet on your mobile phone and you can send and receive money using your mobile phone, it almost makes the unbanked um, a redundant term because you don't need a bank sure. account if you can do those things on your phone. And so um, what we've seen, particularly in Latin America and Africa and India and places like that, um, an escalation in the use of different sorts of cryptocurrencies, blockchain remittance providers, because many people were living on remittances from their relatives, and even blockchain for um, uh, foreign currency transfers for people who needed to be able to buy things from other countries. So, uh, you know, it's certainly 
showing its growth and particularly its growth in emerging markets. And if you look at Chain Analysis's report on, you know, the geography of crypto, you're going to see in the top 20 countries with the populations who use crypto, they're nearly all emerging markets. Right. And, uh, you know, there's certainly a uh, natural either flexibility or a, a greater ability for adaptation. Uh, I think the top five countries would be like areas such as Vietnam, Philippines, uh, Nigeria, and probably until recently, uh, many parts of Eastern Europe. Well, I don't forget Latin America. They're, uh, they're right. moving really quick as yeah, well. Yeah, I believe Peru is on the list as well. Uh, yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I would imagine, I, I think in, in emerging economies, there probably isn't such a either a reliance for traditional financial services, um, probably uh, both either intentionally and unintentionally. Well, but you see, you've got to understand that a lot of the poorest people in the world don't have what they need to be able to open a, meet the requirements to open a bank account, right. um, like an identity, for example, or an address or a utility bill and all these things that the banks want us to provide. So right. they've been excluded and there's some, you know, great projects going on. One that I'll, I'll, I'd like to mention is by Hyde Online and what they're doing is helping women's cooperatives in Niger and other countries in Africa essentially digitise the savings cooperatives and allow them to lend and borrow and grow credit scores um, using digital assets. And so this is advantaging them oh, wow. in a whole lot of ways and giving them access to the economy that they never had. And this is like really people at the bottom of the pyramid. And they're, they're the stories that are most powerful for me and most exciting because people in, in remote areas and people in villages have been absolutely excluded um, from financial services. And we're seeing a growth in their access to financial services, but not just financial services, because as, you know, depending on what connectivity they've got, they've got access to the information of the internet, which will allow them, for example, to sell their products online right. and different things that weren't possible before. Um, and I want to mention, uh, because it was one of the real landmarks of the pandemic, was the explosion of play-to-earn games. But it yes. first came to our... Um, notice in the Philippines with Axie Infinity, where people were literally playing these games to earn enough money to feed their families when uh, Philippines was locked down. And obviously, this was incredibly important, partly because they fed their families, but partly because I think it was a realisation for us that we can create new economies and new jobs that never existed before. And that's what's actually, you know, sort of been spawned by this. And there's, uh, you know, a whole growth in the play to earn games outside of the Philippines, in African countries and South American countries right. and Vietnam. But, uh, I mean, a word of caution, because I, you know, I think we have to approach blockchain and decentralized finance with open eyes, I also think what we saw then was the corporatization of play to earn games with the Axie scholars, because it started off sure. just with games, uh, you know, allowing people to use the Axies and pay a proportion of the winnings. But now we've seen multiple corporations absolutely trying to grow the people, the scholars, but also take greater proportions of their winnings from them. So I just think we have to watch out for that because we're all about democratisation and, right. you know, 
open access and and if we have kind of corporates coming in and um you know i guess gouging the benefits it doesn't seem quite as good to me right and you know and of course based on based on that you almost see kind of the you could say the typical trappings of maybe you could say uh very very one-sided corporatism bleeding into some of these areas that are showing uh, you know, you know, great potential, especially as far as, you know, the Philippines and the rest of Southeast Asia and kind of these play to earn gaming ecosystems emerging. It's 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 quite impressive. And I think it's it's uh, it's very, very promising. You know, um, b- beyond that, do you do you find play to earn uh, in this phenomenon? I guess you could say this this uh, parallel economy that we see emerging. Do you see this also? spreading with the same amount of zeal to let's say the uk or north america or australia no no i don't think so and i'll I'll tell you why because i think uh the rewards are not large enough to be that attractive to people in developed economies i think where it's attractive because if you look at the amount of money that the gamers might have been work uh, earning in the philippines you could have been something like three to four hundred dollars a week I don't think that that's enough to drive a gamer who could probably already, you know, earn six-figure sums or something to do it. But but nevertheless, what, what you have is vast numbers of people who could really benefit from that kind of income. So um, the other thing that I believe, and I'm not technical, is the danger with the play-to-earn games is that they become less in- interesting for the gamers. So I think there's work to be done on the, on the token economy so that the value of the token doesn't go down as more people play, which what is what we saw with the um, Safe Love token from Axie, but also that the games stay interesting enough so you're keeping the people on the network and playing them. So I think this is, this is not the solution, but it's the beginning of a very interesting economy but then that is being followed now by the you know earn to learn earn to exercise you know all of these other kinds of things that potentially people can earn for and be rewarded for are kind of spawning from this approach so I think it's super interesting and I was only um uh, writing a paper for a journal last week which was about whether we could use that whole reward and gaming and earning for people who have chronic disease, obesity, and so forth, to reward them for for being getting fit or for improving their diet right. or achieving their health goals. And there's a there's a project called Sweatcoin that I read about, which you know is just that trying to reward people for doing exercise. And with the wearables, you're able to monitor quite closely what people are doing. So it's a really interesting development, both in terms of people being rewarded and earning money for achieving things, but also for creating a healthier community. Yeah, and, and I have to say this, that is also um, very highly promising as well. I think gamifying certain aspects of our everyday lives could be that extra jolt to our reward systems in our brains to kind of get us going. And even just beyond, you know, exercise, this could even be just doing your chores or just doing your errands, you know, as you're you know, as you're going about, you know, during the week. And, you know, one of the major, I guess you could say, um, points with blockchain is its relationship to the environment and also in light of climate change and everything that's going on. 
And, you know, often I think skeptics, cynics, detractors will often point to, I guess you could say, the vast amount of energy that needs to be expended, the vast amount of electricity, if you will, to power a lot of these processes. Now, granted, there are many, many blockchains that have almost, almost, and not in an absolute sense, made that point moot. But, you know, I do find it very ironic where let's say if, for example, you take the, you know, the U.S. Federal Reserve and I guess you could say the process of smelting coinage and printing notes, I would imagine those processes alone using, you know, various, you know, various types of either standard or even rare earth minerals, I'm sorry, metals, and then the ink and then the paper processing for all that, that has a very, very tangible cost on the environment. And it seems like more and more we're moving away from the fiat hard currency um, world, to say the least. I, I think it's almost inevitable um, there is going to be decentralized currency that's going to be greatly, um, you could say, greatly occupying our everyday lives. Well, look, I think I think what you're trying to demonstrate, and you're quite right, is first of all, let's put this into context. So if you compare you know, the energy usage. And, and let's face it, we're talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum largely. Right. As you say, the Solana, Algorand, Cardano, Celo, all of these chains that have gone green. So you're saying, how do we reduce the energy in, uh, footprint of Bitcoin and Ethereum? Uh, but also, I think that you've got to say, as, as you're comparing it with the, you know, the creation of fiat money, but with manufacturing, with logistics, with, um, sure. you know, livestock and so forth. So you've got to put, it's, People talk about it in the singular as if this is the single biggest impact on the environment in the world, which it's not. But having said that, I think it's incumbent upon our industry that the miners go and find alternative sources of energy and try and reduce their energy footprint. And we know right. Ethereum's trying to generate Ethereum 2.0, which is going to you know, have a lower energy footprint. So I think we need to um highlight how people are trying to change and then the third point that we need to talk about is the different ways in which blockchain is going to be able to accelerate and improve climate action whether it's around the tokenization of green finance or right. whether it's things like you know the the games to reduce your own personal climate footprint and there are several of those around or whether it's the tokenization of carbon offsets, and there's a number of different projects that are working on that, and also um, games, NFT-related games, to encourage people to do climate-positive actions. So I think we should look at the whole picture together and not just... And I've been to so many conferences where people just start the panel, well, we've got to talk about the energy footprint of, of the planet. Sure. It's sort of like... Yes, but let's put it in context and then let's look at the other actions that are taking place that also need to complete the whole picture. Right. And I think that's very well said. And uh, I think like you said, we have to apply a certain context to this. And I would say this, I guess if you look at the uh, batting average, so to say, of you could say the strides towards green energy within blockchain versus you could say the strides towards, you could say, a greener environment through, you could just say the industrial revolution you know from 200 years onward uh blockchain by by far and wide is achieving that faster and has also been i guess you could say over the span of time also less uh damaging mind you it's, it's been around for a far lesser time but 
like I said, comparing the two, it's like, you know, um, I, I think blockchain will get there in a very, very reasonable, expedient way. Well, I think what we need to get better at is working with researchers and academics to get the science out, to get the data to prove that. Because it, like, it's no... Uh, it's not a surprise to anyone that blockchain is an industry that's been full of hype and huff and puff and hyperbole. Sure. And so we can also, yeah. I mean, you know, we all say that blockchain is going to change the world and, you know, we're going to sure. decentralise everything. But I think the point, to your point, is let's get some hard data from reputable sources that show this to be true. And that's why, you know, I'm I'm on the editorial board of Frontiers in Blockchain and uh, Journal Metaverse, because these are scientific journals that get academics and researchers writing papers which are looking at governance of DAOs or the energy footprint of the different blockchains, you know, all the different consensus mechanisms and so forth, because that's that's how people, that will give us legitimacy and people will trust us because we've got a credible third party supporting us with what we say and i think we need to do right. more of that and be better at that agreed and and very uh and very well stated and i was wondering if you could kind of expand uh upon casse holdings and some of the things you're working on and uh how that venture started yeah well okay so so let me tell you i've i've uh, i first heard about bitcoin in 2010 my son told me to buy some and i didn't buy any and then he came back in 2016 and asked me if I bought any and told me how much it was worth. And uh, he said, look, you've got to learn about blockchain because it's going to change everything. And so I started learning about blockchain. And in 2017, I bought my first Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, had a wallet. But you know what happened to me then? I lost my wallet. I lost my phone. I lost my seed phrase. I got oh, another I wallet. I lost that. You know, there are some people who just shouldn't be allowed to try and own their own digital assets. And so, so um, I realised that, you know, for people maybe like me, my generation, or just people who don't want to look after their wallet and look what's going on in markets, there needs to be another way that they can participate in this asset class. And, and I, I mean, first I heard about a company called Iconic, which is a regulated fund in Amsterdam on the stock exchange there. And I actually invested some money in them because I thought, good, like they can look after it for me. I don't have to worry about it. Sure. And then, <laughs> then I was approached by some, uh, well, I was introduced, let's say, by some ex-derivatives traders from London who, again, recognised the need for sort of like mums and pops and aunties and uncles and people who didn't grow up in the digital age who wanted to put money um, into digital assets and and want, and institutional investors too, and they saw the need and the opportunity to establish a regulated investment fund that people could buy shares in, just like you can buy shares in a managed trust. Sure. And so when they spoke to me about that, of course, it resonated with my experience um, which was just of losing all the digital assets I ever had because <laughs> I couldn't look after a wallet or a seed phrase. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, there's a place for this where people can put their money in, it's regulated, they know it's safe, and there's an investment team whose job it is is to figure out the best way to invest their money. So in short, um, I was excited to join them and we listed on the Aqua Stock Exchange in London in November last year. 
Oh, wow. That's awesome. And you're based out of, you know, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, somebody who's uh, very, very excited and fascinated, especially with that region, the leadership seems very, very forward thinking. Um, five, 10, 20 years into the future when it comes to Web3 and blockchain uh, technology. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, your experience uh, living there and collaborating with different organizations and people and kind of what the general vibe is over there. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I didn't intend to go and live in Dubai. I, I left Australia last October because I objected to being locked down in Australia. Sure. And I had a, you know, kind of not around the world ticket, but a ticket to London stopping in Dubai. And there was a bunch of blockchain conferences on in October. So I thought, okay, I'll spend October there. I'll go to these conferences. I'll, you know, do some speaking. I'll meet some people. And I, you know, I was really blown away by what I saw. Just first of all, the extent to which the government's gone out of its way to attract technologists and companies there. They're offering right. 100,000 golden visas, which are 10-year visas for um, right. software developers to come there. They're offering incentives for startups to come. Um, they were offering two, I'm going to call it a digital nomad style of visa. They recognised during the pandemic that there'd be digital nomads in countries that probably were suffering a bit with the pandemic come to come to Dubai. And so as a result, they've attracted um, so many big and small firms, Binance and FTX have come. They have the blockchain center. They've uh, recently bought land in Decentraland to set up the regulator in the metaverse. So, you know, it's a very exciting environment there. And there are so many conferences, it's come to the point, honestly, and probably all the people at Consensus will die when I say this. Someone said to me, are you going to Consensus this year? And I said, why would I? Everyone comes to Dubai now. If you're in Dubai, you're conferences, all of the big names come there. And from that point of view, it's incredibly exciting. There's Metaverse, DeFi, NFT, events literally every week and major significant conferences and you know a government that is just embracing the possibilities of technology it's a very exciting time yeah to say the least and i guess as the phrase goes uh, all roads lead to rome it, it really appears to me the uae and dubai is rome perhaps in that regard as it, as it comes to blockchain and you know correct me if i'm wrong but i was I came across this in my research, but apparently um, the government, uh, you know, within Dubai has actually migrated, I guess you could say a lot of their um, uh, utilities and I guess you could say, uh, you know, um, offices onto Hyperledger. Um, does that does that sound about right? Well, I think the, Dr. Marwan, who is the leader of the Dubai Blockchain Center, and he has been for many years, you know, they were out there with their blockchain strategy in 2015 or 2016 and, and aiming to make Dubai paperless. And, and you know, they've just wow. been moving ahead, moving ahead with many, many different uh, innovations. And they really are, you know, quite futuristic and quite inspired. And, you know, you build this amazing city out of the desert in 50 years right. and you've got the openness to building this kind of, um, technological future, then possibilities are endless. And then just next door, you've got Saudi Arabia, which is also trying to, you know, kind of come right. out and internationalise and they, they're creating these 
big economic zones. They're building a billion-dollar metaverse in NEOM. And it's, it's, again, the whole region is becoming very, very exciting in terms of technological possibilities. Yeah, and, you know, just to kind of throw in a movie reference there, you know, I, I look at Dubai and it's almost reminiscent of something like Blade Runner or, you know, like The Fifth Element and some of those, uh, I think, kind of more classic movies back in the day. And listen, you know, maybe it's just hubris from a cultural point of view, but I would have thought that, let's say, New York or London or one of those, you could say, traditional uh, major commercial centers would have made it there first. And it seems like, uh, as you mentioned, within 50 years, Dubai um, essentially almost came out of nowhere and has established itself as, you know, really the tech hub, the tech portal of the, you know, of the foreseeable future. I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, where is it that, let's say, areas like New York or, let's say, London, you know, more or less kind of drop the ball on this, Uh Whereas, you know, it seems like other areas of the world seem to be very either much more adaptable or flexible or something's going on. Well, I'll tell you what 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 I've seen that I think is a significant difference. And, I, and I'm not I'm not going to necessarily agree with you that New York and, and London have dropped the ball, but they've got a lot more um, regulation and forces working against them to be able to sure. achieve you know, the sort of technological innovation. But but what I think is really um, kind of the essence of somewhere like Dubai is that the majority of the population are not from Dubai. They've come there because right. they want to make a better life. Like there are, there are no no-hopers, drug addicts, you know, dull bludgers, none. Everyone's there because they're trying to make a better life. So there's this kind of foaming oh, of see. excitement and trying an effort then everyone comes from all around the world so you have this incredible cultural and social diversity which you I mean you have some diversity in New York and London but nothing like this and so people right. are coming from different environments and you know they have different ideas about how to solve problems and I think that that's an incredibly rich intellectual environment and then the third point of course is that you know obviously it's it's an oil rich region. And so there's money right. to invest if it's something that they want to do. But I think it's those factors. And then plus, you know, within five hours flight, they're in the middle of the world. That's why it's called the Middle East. They're surrounded by some of the biggest, most populous countries in the world. And a lot yeah. of the people who are in Dubai are coming, you know, you can fly to India, you can fly to Africa, you can fly to Jordan, you can fly to Spain. And so you're, you're bringing all of that and those thoughts and ideas and the challenges. So I believe that the, the growth in crypto last year um, in the Middle East was 1,800%, whereas globally it was 800%. So they're really kind of embracing and going with this. Sure. It, it seems like uh, in that region of the world, there's certainly uh, almost an absence of apathy. And it seems like most people are go who go there are already very self-motivated and at least I think passionate about, let's say, pursuing whatever, you know, you could say enterprise or entrepreneurial based dreams that they have, to say the least. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if people go there to make a better life from themselves, you know, from the security guards and the cleaners to the tech startups to the people who come to professional services firms. And it really encourages that kind of drive ambition and innovation in a way can i imagine it's like you know the early days of the us 
when people yeah. came and they were going to, you know, right. find gold or find a fortune or build something. Yeah, the gold rush on the West Coast the same, in the 1800s. Yeah. yeah. I think it's that same spirit. And and it's it's palpable and exciting when you're there because everyone you talk about is going, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Do you want to know about this? And, you know, it really oh, is wonderful. a buzz. Yeah, and you know, and, and especially somebody who's a history nerd, I look at essentially what's going on in the UAE, and it, it is reminiscent of, let's say, the uh, the gold rush in the West Coast in the U.S., or you could say, uh, you know, the huge uh, Wall Street and banking boom uh, in, in New York from like the uh, end of the 19th century and and onwards as well. So it's it's very very promising to see that um, that area seems to be a giant connector um, for for people from all different parts of the world and. It seems like a very almost po very positive environment too. It seems like there's some sort of synergy where I think if you have all these people with with a very similar orientation towards you know being very industrious and trying to make a better life, I I think people who are like that will only build off each other you know over time. So I would imagine networking must be awesome over there. Absolutely, absolutely. And and what I've found, I mean, I actually started. Two groups, one for people who are interested in um, blockchain and social impact. And, you know, that's grown to several hundred people in the in the course of a few months. And uh, about three weeks ago, we had a whole conference, which was called Halalverse. Um, and part of it was about sort of embracing the Islamic population into blockchain, but it was all about impact. Um, and then there's another group that I started, again, because it was sort of seeing possible gaps was going to Saudi and, and being um, contacted by two young Saudi blockchain engineers, women, because the women are able to be out and about, but the, the structures to support and mentor and enable them don't seem to be there. So right. I spoke to a few people and said, look, let's let's make a group so that, you know, we can support Arab women in tech in this region and give them a boost and encourage them with what they're doing. So you know, I think there's a lot of these networks going on. They're just two that I got involved in starting, but I'm involved in other ones. And they're all super active, you know, like come to this meetup, we're doing this here, we're doing that there. It's very active. That's wonderful. And in your opinion, how do you feel that blockchain, metaverse and Web3 related projects can further encourage, let's say, inclusion of more women within within tech? It's, it seems like there's been some strides and progress uh you know you know so far um however um you know going forward like how do you envision let's say blockchain perhaps either reaching that or maybe perhaps almost reaching it well look i think you've got you've got to look at it in a couple of different ways so in terms of technology being an attractive industry for women to work in i think there's no doubt about that because it's really flexible you can work on a 24-hour basis you can still go and pick up your kids from school if that's what you want to do um, but i think that uh you know to some extent women have seen barriers both in terms of understanding the tech having the courage to kind of go to conferences and meetups without you know, being shy or, or feeling that they don't know. And, right. and you know, a lot of people show the data about the lack of VC funding for women startups. Um, and, and I look, I think it's a, it's a journey in a way because I, 
and there are a number of groups like Lavinia Osborne in London with uh, oh, yes. Women in Blockchain Talks and then you've I got know. the Women yeah. in Blockchain Network, which started in New York with Tessie Moraine from Consensus and then grew all around the, the world. Uh, you know, sometimes women need safe spaces to go and be embarrassed sure. and say, listen, I don't know how to do this. And these groups are, are growing all the time. But my, my own view very strongly is that we need to develop, and there are many, and showcase women role models who've just done it, who are doing awesome right. projects, who are leading different aspects of the work, and let young women see that there are women leaders in the field. And personally, I don't think that that's like having the token women in blockchain panel at a, at a conference. I think it's all about just making sure that you get awesome women doing keynotes, and speaking on panels, not talking about the fact that they're women, but you, and not just women, diversity in general. Right. You're just seeing every kind of person who's up there who's doing amazing things. And you can see that it's, you know, a kind of panoply of all of the different types of people that, that exist in the universe. Because the other thing you see all the time is, you know, the 10 top people in blockchain, they're all white from America. Like, really? So I think we have to get a bit right. more global about it as well. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and by the way, I think almost as, as far as a messaging point of view, you know, if if let's say blockchain and, you know, the various aspects of the metaverse and Web3 is supposed to be a new frontier to everybody, I certainly don't want to see the same faces, let's say, occupying the headlines for that. Because even for, you know, even from where I'm standing, I'm like, I'm kind of wondering, is this, is this a good old boys club? Is this just going to be friends of friends who are going to kind of be opening the door for each other? And at the expense of, you know, everybody else, you know, women and men, regardless of, uh, you know, geographic location. So even looking at that, it's like I kind of wonder, I'm like, I hope this isn't, this isn't going to be more of the same because I think we do need greater inclusion, period. And, and I think maybe uh, where we've gotten to in history, perhaps one of the major symptoms of let's say many of these problems is, is that maybe we have too many echo chambers and i think that's kind of the problem maybe with certain industries it becomes cloistered you surround yourself with the same types of people you get the same types of opinions and almost either intentionally or unintentionally you surround yourself with you know yes men or yes women and then what happens is you don't really see the punches coming you know because you're just hiring your friends all the time effectively well look i i think that we all need to work hard for that but we've certainly seen um, a lot more women coming into the NFT space. Um, that yeah. seems to be, you know, something that women are embracing and doing a lot. And there's a lo loads of collections being led by women and being right. about women. So, you know, I, I think that there will be spaces. I think that um, potentially in the metaverse as well, because you're, you're talking about immersive spaces where people can go and do different things. And I think that um, some of them will be naturally attractive to women. And I'm already seeing several um, metaverse companies that are led or substantially led by women. So I think right. that we're going to see that more because it's also women being involved in things that women are interested in, which might not be, you know, playing World of Warcraft and running around and shooting people, but definitely going shopping with your avatar is going to be a super cool experience that women are going to want to do. So, you know, I think part of it is... Is, is the tech and the participation in the tech something that women see benefit in? And one of the areas that, that I speak about increasingly is 
what we're going to see with metaverse in health and education and chronic disease and so forth, which again, you know, these kind of more nurturing, caring, service-oriented things, I think are going to attract more women as well. Very, very well said. And, uh, you know, I know one of the uh, ribbons or rather one of the accomplishments you have in your background is that you're on the editorial board for the uh, Journal of Metaverse. So what I wanted to know is, as far as the metaverse and the future ahead, how do you see industries being scaled and transformed? Let's say healthcare or, you know, social media, for instance. How do you see like those two type of industries being transformed and, you know, augmented or you could say, uh, you know, revolutionized even, you know, through. Uh, well, let, let, me, let me talk about healthcare, but but sure. but also to say what I'm seeing is increasingly many industries starting to sit up and say, how is this going to affect us? What do we have to think about? Is there something about our business model that needs to change? Um, right. So I think we're seeing it in many industries. But let me talk about healthcare first. So I think there's a whole lot of different ways that potentially the metaverse is going to be able to improve the quality, expand the possibilities and expand the services because healthcare is something where there's a shortage of health workers, there's a shortage of money and so forth. And so. so if we start off by, you know, looking at collaboration, so scientific disco discovery and research usually involves collaboration from people all around the world. And traditionally how this has been done is you'd fly 50 or 100 people all to some central point in Geneva where WHO is for a week and then they'd confer on a subject and then they'd go back again. That's very expensive, but it's also not continuous and you need to be able to collaborate on an ongoing basis with your team. So if you think about the possibilities, you know, you have avatars going into the metaverse, you have digital whiteboards, projectors, whatever you need to be able to collaborate spaces. You might have a digital twin of some particular complicated hospital or procedure that you're building and people can be working on that on an ongoing basis over a period of time. So that's one. I think the second one, which is super exciting, is around education because it's going to allow things like students to go inside the human body and see it as it is, to be able yeah. to, you know, be a surgeon operating on a patient and not be able to kill the patient, doing like a real-time um, complex procedure and sure. and they can never kill the patient, but they can be as if they were the surgeon during, doing the operation. And so I think those kinds of learning experiences are going to make it make better clinicians because they're going sure. to be able to um, be part of it. But also, you know, people are developing the possibility using AR and VR that a surgeon operating on a body can basically have a an overlay, a virtual overlay of exactly that patient's CAT scan or um, you know, radiology while they're operating. So it'll make for more precision medicine. So then moving on to things like health and wellness, um, using the combination, I mean, you could have virtual avatars doing your fitness for you. You can have them doing your education for you on diet and exercise. But people are also making now these earn to exercise games where you have fun you play a game you've got battle creatures but they sure. only get stronger and better if you do exercise and that's monitored through wearables so there's all these possibilities of using gamification you know to be able to incentivize people to um 
get fit, lose weight and so forth. And with blockchain, the possibility obviously of creating the token economy within the metaverse so people can be rewarded for whatever it is that they're doing, you know, opens up a whole realm of possibilities. So, so I think that's just one industry, but I, I'll just add about social prescribing, which is not something we have in US or Australia, but they have it in the UK. And this is recognising that a patient might present at a health facility, but that's not their only problem. They might have financial problems. They might have um, homelessness problems. They yeah. might have mental health, alcoholism. And so what happens with social prescribing is that they see a care worker and that care worker looks at all of the causes. Um, oh, wow. Of their, and, Very and holistic. Then, it is, but if you, you think that's possible in a metaverse environment, you can get put in touch with community groups, you can get put in touch right. with Anonymous, you can put in touch with people who help with your housing or and so forth. So it just kind of, and you haven't had to go down from one department to another to another to another. It's all in sure. one place. And the, the city of Seoul in South Korea has announced it's going to put its government services into the metaverse. And, and I think as, this is all still a concept and it's all still a little bit um, futuristic. But if you think about the possibilities of creating efficiency and transparency in government services and allowing people to link with many, many government departments using one identity, you know, it really could improve the quality of services that are provided for citizens. That is incredible. And in fact, I think what the UK is doing, and you know, this is the first time I'm hearing it, social prescribing, that actually makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, you know, and, and I would imagine if there's any detractors to this, I would say this actually saves money in the long run if that's going to be one of the arguments. If you're actually to meet with these individual patients and actually troubleshoot and diagnose all of these problems going on in, let's say, different facets of their life, I mean, these things are all connected. You know, your financial um, you know, your financial health is, you know, for, you know, it's either going to, you know, increase your stress, um, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's very, you know, vulnerable and whatnot. And, uh, you know, things like alcoholism or if there's any other drug addictions in the background, that's also going to prevent your recovery for, you know, greater injuries as well. I mean, if you get into a car accident and you've broken a femur or you have some sort of internal bleeding, um, alcoholism is going to greatly stagnate healing of those let's say organs or bones and muscle tissue and whatnot so that is actually a great idea and that's sort of something i definitely want to research a bit more um you know about as you know as as well so definitely but i think to your point that what yes. well what what i try and do and what i think those of us who sort of have a concept about what's going on with web3 in the metaverse is try to imagine how it can impact on different industries or on different things right. that people want to do in a good way. Um, and, and I think that there's tremendous opportunity and people are starting to come and say, help me think this through. And I think that those of us who are just a little bit ahead of the curve in the sense that we've been thinking about the metaverse and Web3, you know, for six months longer than anyone else. I'm No one's an expert. It's everyone's sure. developing it as we go. Oh, yeah. And just share those. Here's a possibility you could think about. Here's how you might do it. Here's what it could do for your industry. I think there's um, tremendous potential because I think lack of education, both about blockchain, metaverse, Web3, DeFi, is one of the biggest barriers to social understanding and social uptake. So I think there's a huge 
role, but just helping people understand and not understanding a Merkle tree or a hard fork or a soft sure. fork or any of these terms that we use, but just right. like for my life, how could this actually be better for me? Very, you know, uh, very well said. Uh, I, I certainly think if there is a way to make the subject matter a bit more digestible and just easy on the listener, so to say, I think that will be half the battle um, as far as mass adoption and really communicating the, uh, you know, the true value of, you know, of this, uh, you know, of this technology to say, you know, to say the very least, you know, and, and I think especially given the fact that you've been in this um, space for quite a while, this makes you like virtually like a veteran, like Merlin, to be honest, <laughs> like, you know, mo you know, I think even two years is kind of a long time for anybody to be, you know, to be in this space as, you know, to be in this space as well. So I think that's, that's incredible. And, you know, as far as like other industries, like how do you think this is going to transform social media? Do you think the metaverse is going to be the new social media um, as far as are we really going to almost have this gamified experience using avatars or almost like these uh, 3D, you know, VR, AR video game characters as we communicate and interact with each other, like on Twitter or on Instagram? Something well, I like think that will change, and th this is the big change that that's kind of coming because at the moment, social media is essentially all controlled by centralized organisations yes. who are attractive, if I could say that, and they take the data and they use it, and you know they charge fees and they advertise and so forth. I think that what we're seeing, and I won't use the term social media, but we're seeing the development of these community-owned economies and social tokens that allow people to engage socially um, in subjects they want to or groups that they want to or get closer access to, you know, film stars, pop stars and people sure. that, that they want to be part of. So I think what we're going to see is the growth of these um, community economies that interact with social tokens where all parties can benefit from being part of this community. And, and I think that that's the change we'll see. In terms of you know, where and how we socialise, you know, that's that's going to be a choice and people are going to, you know, there's 160 plus companies building metaverses at the moment. We're just not all going to spin through those 160 metaverses. Sure. So we, yeah. we're going to be looking for communities that are like our tribe, where we want to be part of it, where we identify with their values or their brand or whatever it is that, that they're about. And they're the ones that we're going to go into. And we're going to meet old friends and we're going to meet new friends um, and yeah. people are going to spend time there. But it's not like we're never going to see another real person again. Of course not. You know, we are real people and we've got human relations with people and it, it'll just be, a you know, kind of a closer merging of the virtual and the physical. And, and the one that I love so much because, you know, any woman that's had to go into a store and try underwear on knows how absolutely humiliating that is. So just imagine you can send your exactly fit for purpose avatar to your measurements into the shop, try on oh, all the bikinis that you'd never be game to try on as a human being, sure. order the pair that you like and have them delivered to you, the real person in the correct size. I mean, that's so cool. And I'm sure we'll all be doing that, especially for underwear. But, you know, I think it's just the, the opportunities that um, this is going to we need to, and people are imagining them. These 160 companies are trying to build 
metaverses that will appeal to whatever constituency that they're trying to appeal to. And, and we're going to find that. Um, and it's early days yet. And I think that, again, as these communities are forming, we can understand how they work, how their tokens operate, how their rewards and incentives operate, how their sanctions operate, and we can keep on learning more and more what people want and how to keep people safe. Um, and on that point, just to raise the issue of ethics, um, because, yeah, there's a lot of risks. Uh, and, and Metaverse introduces even more risk because not only is it going to monitor the things that we do spend money on and so forth, because it will often be uh, connected with wearables. It will be monitoring physiological responses, so they'll have a lot more knowledge and data on you. And, and issues like children in the metaverse, how do we keep them sure. safe? How do we know an avatar is your avatar, not some bad actor's avatar? You know, the, And do avatars have rights? Can I kill your avatar? Is that okay? So I think there's lots of questions right. that we, we need to be seriously thinking about and... Uh, you know, seriously encouraging those who are building these new worlds to think about and bake into the code because that's the challenge with digital ethics because one algorithm can make decisions that affect millions of people. So we don't know. Sure. And it also makes me wonder too, especially based on some of those issues that can come up, what is that going to do with, I guess you could, you could say as far as uh, death threats or sexual harassment? If somebody is, let's say, you know, um, if somebody's let's say harming your avatar in let's say the form of either you know violence or sexual violence um what are the effects going to be on the user and how is society or how is the metaverse going to be able to deal with a lot of those problems because because if it is your likeness it is something that you're going to be affected by you know based on how other people let's say treat that likeness so whether let's say i have an avatar or you have an avatar you know i think both you or I would have a certain strong reaction if, let's say, somebody was able to harm that likeness or humiliate that likeness, you know, especially where thousands and, and greater people can actually witness and see that. No, I think that that's a very legitimate and serious question. And I think it's incredibly important that we put these out in the public domain and that we're discussing it. Because we have, for example, there's no code of code of ethical standards for software developers. There's not a, a kind a of, you know, how you, yeah. Have, yeah. you know, doctors have the... Right, the they have the Hippocratic Oath and, uh, you know, lawyers exactly. have, so yeah, this, essentially the professional code yeah, of conduct. So, so I, think, I think there's some, some real room to move, both in terms of thinking about... But, I mean, I, I read a study where they said 80% of software developers would be happy to think about ethics in programming, but they're not taught about it. So how do we teach them about it, you know? So I think right. there's a whole lot of questions about that. And I think there's questions about, um, you know, how you apply any sort of global standards or national standards, you know, in terms of protection of avatar rights, if that's what we need to do. You know, I just think it's too early to give you a list of 10 things we should do but I'm pretty confident in saying we need to be outlining what the possible right. threats and negative consequences are, and we need to be planning for those things to be mitigated now. Right. And as far as, let's say, the metaverse and, you know, and I think you mentioned this good point as far as children, I guess, the way they interact with the metaverse, that is going to be a whole other, you could say, um, obstacle 
and you could say uh, mission to you know to overcome as well. So many different types of issues uh, you know arise from that. And of course, on one hand, you want to allow people you know certain freedoms to either express their creativity or you know even participate in commerce. On the other hand, you know there is also the very very you know um, there is the high uh, concern and interest towards protecting the minor. Um, in this space as well from, you know, malicious actors and whatnot. So that is going to be a very, very, uh, that it's going to be a very difficult journey uh, to kind of traverse that terrain. But, um, you know, I'm very optimistic. I, I feel we will get there. Um, well, there was a very, we put out a book last year called uh, Applied Ethics in a Digital World, and it was a collection of chapters. And one of the chapters was about, um, digital ethics and the rights of children. And it, it was like really, really interesting read because it's, right. it takes quite a different perspective from the one that we tend to come from, which is if, there are, if they're minors, then the parents and the state get to decide. So I, I just think there's a lot of thinking to be done about this. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that um, we need to start thinking about it and working it through because it will most definitely be a challenge that we're already facing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm also a father as well, and I have a four-year-old. So, you know, um, certainly as time goes on, I'm probably going to develop some very, very strong opinions as far as, you know, metaverse usage or whether this is involving an Oculus or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, head accessory. And, you know, I guess you can say the types of channels and content, you know, coming through that as well. It's going to be, it, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this manifests over over the next few years and how it's going to be handled you know you know at a state level at a country level at a you know by regulatory organizations and and whatnot so you know these are all you know excellent points uh you know you, you've certainly raised and you know going forward um what uh what do you have in store for the uh the rest of 2022 between uh, i guess you could say your various uh ventures and projects you know you're certainly uh like i said you certainly have a hand in many things and you certainly wear many hats so uh what exciting things do you have on the horizon? Well, we're writing a book on Web3. It's been accepted by a publisher. So excellent. Um, before the end of the year, hopefully third quarter, that's going to be out. And that's part of you know my mission uh, for education. Um, I'm also, because living in the UAE, they have the presidency of the COP, which is the big climate conference in 2023. So we're really trying to... Um, generate a lot of interest and activity around blockchain for climate action because, you know, people's minds are obviously galvanised around that. Um, and I'm the chief editor of a UN environment report on digitisation and the environment for West Asia, which is the Middle East. Um, and then, of course, you know, with Cassay Holdings, I guess, like, Everyone else in the crypto world, we're just bunkering down and holding tight and seeing what's happening in the markets and hoping that they right. come back. Again. Right. And yeah, and, and I think for, for many in the space, um, you know, I, I don't get the impression people are too distressed. Um, you know, I think inevitably things will certainly, you know, bounce back and it's it's going to be exciting. I think maybe, maybe us, you know, as such, the allure of blockchain is really a, uh, you don't really entirely know what's going to happen, uh, maybe for better, for better or for worse. So there's a lot of uh, possibility for both, uh, you know, good and perhaps disastrous things as well. But I do think it's a, it's, it's certainly a risk worth 
you know, exploring given the amount of uh, potential for good it has. It's a very exciting world. And as you say, just ending on that potential for good, you know, that's what inspires me and keeps me going because there are so many incredible people that I meet both in US, UK, Australia, Middle East, Asia, Africa, who are really putting their minds to how this technology can make things better across industries for financial inclusion, humanitarian climate. And, and that's exciting and that's inspiring. And I think we should just keep on trying to do that and shine a light on the great projects and great people who are doing that. Beautifully said. Uh, I don't think I can add anything to that. That could certainly, you know, you know, uh, top that that sentiment. Uh, Dr. Thomason, thank you so much for coming on today, and I really do appreciate you, you know, uh, spending your time with me today on this episode to, you know, provide your insights on these, you know, various things because it's, you know, these insights, these analyses this is going to give people the context to be interested and eventually start building a greater, you know, understanding. And, you know, like you said, you know, it, it probably doesn't do a whole lot of good towards, you could say, the messaging if, you know, droning on, you know, Merkle trees and nodes and what hashing is. I think for a lot of people, there's not enough context, you know, to kind of place that in their lives. But, you know, providing, you could say, these very thoughtful you know, um, you know, you could say, you know, analysis on, on, you know, various, uh, you could say global things, this is going to be the hook that's going to really, I think, start people's journey towards determining or ascertaining uh, where their interest lies, you know, in, in this space as well. So, you know, like I said, I'm very happy to have you, you know, back on. And, you know, of course, it was wonderful, um, you know, participating in the, you uh, uh, global crypto uh, uh, <laughs> cryptocurrency uh, conference, uh, you know, digitally in Dubai with you as well. Um, I certainly had a a great time doing that with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to your book. Please let me know when your book comes out. I definitely want to uh, buy a copy, and I, I do love reading physical hard copy books. So half of my place is really just one big library to begin with. So <laughs> keep me posted on that. Thank you so much, and it's great talking with you. Likewise, Dr. Thomason, uh, thank you again, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye.